Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. On today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Louise Archer, who's a postdoctoral fellow in the Laboratory of Quantitative Global Change Ecology at the University of Toronto, Scarborough. She was here to talk about her new bioscience article on the use of analogies to convey public health information, um, especially relating to you know SARS-CoV-2. As a former English major, this one's very near and dear to my heart, so I hope you'll enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Let's go to the interview. Dr. Archer, thank you very much for joining me today. Well, glad to be here. Thanks, James. Very happy to chat to you today. Okay, so today we're going to be talking about um, analogies, and in particular analogies as, you know, they relate to public health and the, you know, COVID-19 pandemic. Um, so I was wondering if you could just get us started by ch telling us a little bit about, you know, the way that analogies are used and, you know, and, and the way that they convey information to the public. It's something that, you know, I think we're all aware of the moment we kind of think about it for the first time. But if you haven't thought about it for that first time, um, you know, you, you might not you know, realize that the way that you're kind of interpreting everything is through that particular lens. Yeah, for sure. I mean, analogies are very much a part of our everyday life. Um, I think that we we actually conceptualize a lot of the world using analogies, right? So there are parts of the world that are unfamiliar to us, um, and we kind of gain a bit of understanding by using knowledge of things we do know to understand things that we don't know. So this is just thinking of something that's unfamiliar and rephrasing it um, or reconceptualizing it in a way that's more familiar for you that you can then kind of use your own knowledge to get to a natural outcome or a natural level of understanding using just what you already know. Um, and in public health, this is something that's used quite a lot because um, there's a lot of complex information sometimes coming um, at the public in, in public health settings. And so being able to, to break that down into something that's understandable, easily picked up is really important. And that's where we've seen analogies become so important, um, particularly in the last number of years with the COVID-19 pandemic. We've really seen use of analogies kind of come to the fore in public health communications. And they've really been front and central um, in public messaging and in communications from policymakers and, and public health officials. So it's something that really is, I think, very apparent and very important to think about in a little bit more detail. Okay. And I wonder if we might chat just a little bit about, you know, probably the first sort of analogy that we all heard, um, you know, which was the idea of flattening the curve um, and that first conceptualization of, of, you know, kind of how we would think about disease spread. Um, and I was wondering if you could tell us just a little bit about that and kind of, you know, um, the, the way that that one worked in, you know, public health communication. Sure. Yeah. And I think, um, you're absolutely right in that this is this is one of the first things that became apparent of this idea of flattening the curve. And the basis of that really comes from this classic image in in epidemiology, which is this um, visual of a curve. So the progress, progression of a disease through a closed population typically takes the form of a curve. So that's when you have this characteristic increase in cases and um, when a single infected individual enters a population, you see this increase in cases, this starts to level off. So you get this classic peak and then declines as the population heads towards herd immunity. So you get this very characteristic curve. Um, and that peak of infections is what um, was targeted when we heard 
this reference to flattening the curve, right? So you want to keep that peak down as low as possible to, to limit the impact on the population as a whole. So the higher the peak, the higher the number of people that have been infected. So by lowering that peak, what you're talking about is actually lowering the number of people who are infected in a population. So that was really what was being targeted with this idea of flattening the curve. And that really referred to just this classic and um, progression of disease in a population and um, which you see um, coming from these classic and um, epidemiological models. Okay, but then things get, I would imagine, a little bit more complicated as you, you know, um, head into, you know, um, subsequent variants and, and things like that. It doesn't become quite so simple. Yeah, absolutely. And this initial kind of idea of flattening the curve really came from our kind of um, classical knowledge of how epidemics have progressed previously um, and what theory tells us how they might progress. But it does become a little bit more complicated because the different um, components of models, which is how we actually understand these like pandemics and epidemics, we use models to try and understand what's happening and try and predict what's happening. When you start to adjust different components of models or you start to have different characteristics of a pathogen, you can start to see different things happening. So, for example, um, in certain cases, you might get a pathogen that shows um, different um, levels of transmission with seasons. So something that transmits more in the winter, less in the summer. You can also have behavioral changes that affect how this how this curve will look or how it will progress. Um, so trying to incorporate all of these different processes is really important and something that's important to both include in models, but also include in, in our understanding as well. So try to understand just how our own behavior and properties of the pathogen might alter the progression of the disease. Absolutely. So let's talk about, you know, one of the, you know, analogies that we've heard the most of, you know, over the course of the pandemic. And, and that's sort of the wave model, um, which, you know, makes an intuitive amount of sense, but it, it has some shortcomings that you describe in the article. And I was wondering, you know, if you could talk about how that particular conceptualization can potentially fall short um, in conveying meaning to, you know, people or maybe not even conveying the right messages. Sure. Yeah. So the wave has been really common in a lot of public health messaging um, regarding the, the pandemic. And again, this kind of comes from the idea of this classic curve shape um, in epidemiology that you see this curve as infections progress through populations. And um, so this wave has, is, although useful for visualizing how um, an epidemic might progress, what it doesn't actually give us much of an inkling about is the, the reasons why um, an epidemic progresses as it does, right? So the different factors that underlie this, the, the rise and fall in cases, and also what we can do um, to mitigate the rise in cases and, and hasten the fall in cases, right? So you don't really get to, you don't get to kind of intuit a lot about the processes that underlie the dynamics that are at play when you're thinking of a wave. So waves kind of generate the impression of they come at you, they wash over you, and you can't really do a huge amount a huge amount about the wave that's coming to hit you. You just kind of brace it, brace for it, and then it washes over you, right? So with the wave, what you're actually not getting at is the processes that are driving these dynamics. So that's where kind of thinking of where the wave 
analogy is useful and where it's not so useful is important. So it's, it can be quite useful when you actually want to describe what might happen, right? So if you're talking about, okay, if there's no interventions, there's no kind of targeted um, interventions at certain processes that drive these dynamics, that might then kind of give people an idea of what could happen in a in a bad case scenario. So if nothing nothing's done to kind of limit transmission, this is what could happen. Um, so it could be useful for illustrating illustrating potential outcomes. Um, and it, it can also be useful to think about it in hindsight, right? So what happened here, we see this wave and then this decline in cases. What it's not so useful for is thinking about the future because a wave gives the impression that this is an eventuality that's going to happen. You can't do much about it, right? Whereas in reality, there are these different, you can target different aspects of transmission that will change the shape of that wave and perhaps even prevent it from occurring. And that's really not um, evident just from the, the wave analogy alone. Um, so this is where we started talking and thinking about alternative analogies that might give you a bit give the give the public a bit more of um an inclination as to the ways that you can target um transmission and then change um the dynamics in the future right so it's not um inevitable that you're going to have this reoccurrence in cases and this so-called wave that you can actually target different components of transmission that will then slow down and perhaps even prevent an increase in cases Right. So, I mean, you're kind of removing agency in a way, because if, you know, there's and we don't really have a really great conceptual language for, you know, the interventions that you might take to break up a wave or something like that. We can kind of think about, you know, um, you know breakwaters or seawalls or things like that. But it doesn't really, you know, it doesn't really track very well to, you know, what might be non-pharmaceutical interventions or vaccination or, you know, isol I mean, it doesn't it, it doesn't quite kind of hang together. Right. Yeah, exactly. That's it. So there, there are different um, ways that the wave analogy has been used to try and get at those aspects of tr transmission that can alter kind of future dynamics, but they really don't kind of have a natural, um, a natural analogy or natural comparison with the underlying dynamics. So it's hard to see anything in the wave analogy that kind of gives you a sense of what's driving those dynamics. So, for example, reducing transmission rate through masking or through vaccination, things like this, they're not really evident from the wave. And that's really where it falls short because it removes the sense of what a person or what a government or what a state can do to try and to try and limit um, any reoccurrence or peaking cases again. And that's really where it falls short. So it kind of doesn't have a natural um, analogy to the processes that are underlying the, the um, spread and the transmission of infections. Okay, great. And so let's let's chat a little bit about um, a model that you know might be more successful, or at least you know kind of give uh, those who are you know in, in a public health setting the tools that they need to convey information meaningly, meaningfully to the public. Um, and so the article speaks favorably about um, you know models relating to fire. And, and I'm just wondering, you know, kind of how is fire different? And we can talk about some of the other you know um, analogy models later. But um, you know, what what in particular makes fire kind of uh, a strong one? Yeah, so fire kind of also cropped up pretty early on in, in the pandemic as a, as a way of conceptualizing the processes um, at work that might be driving these dynamics. And the the way fire is, is quite successful as an analogy for COVID is that many different aspects um, of 
fires and different types of fires from campfires to forest fires capture different elements of underlying models that scientists have used to understand the dynamics driving the COVID-19 pandemic. So transmission rate is a really important component of these scientific models. Um, and you can really think about transmission rate um, and how it affects populations in terms of fire. So for example, if you have a campfire, you have all these dry pieces of wood, which might represent susceptible individuals in a population. A spark, which would be your, your patient zero, your first infection, that can then light another piece of wood on fire and could light two, three, four pieces of wood on fire. You're starting to get your spread of infections. So you're starting to see this, this um, epidemic progress. And that's then the fire taking off in this campfire. Um, and as the fire burns through this pile of wood, you start to see most of the wood, or at least some of the wood will start to burn up and eventually the fire will burn out. And that's kind of like herd immunity being reached, say, where there's sufficient number of burned pieces of wood that the fire just won't spread anymore. But when you, what's really important in this, in this analogy is that you can actually think of ways that you could stop that campfire taking off or you could stop that campfire spreading, right? You could break up piles of, of dry kindling, dry wood that limit the, the opportunity for sparks to take off and, and to engulf the entire, the entire stack of wood. You can use fire blankets um, to, to cover the wood. And these are um, analogous to, to kind of intervention or control measures such as masking, such as social distancing early on in the pandemic. So where people were, were keeping apart from one another to limit transmission, that's similar to, to pulling these pieces of wood apart to stop the, the flames jumping from one, one to another. So you can kind of start thinking of these control measures to limit transmission the same way as you might start thinking about um, how you would stop a fire spreading because there are very um, kind of intuitive similarities between the two processes and that's what makes it quite an effective analogy um, for for a, a disease that spread like COVID-19. Uh, that's really interesting and you hinted at it a little bit but one of the things that struck me about this model too is that it um, encompasses and includes geography in a way that, you know, a wave model doesn't. One of the things that bugged me about a year ago um, was we would hear about the respective waves of COVID um, that were coming, but it didn't reflect the fact that, you know, transmission might be very high in my local area uh, versus, you know, somewhere across the country where it might be low or vice versa. And, you know, the fire analogy seems to allow you a way of approaching that sort of issue um, in a sense that, you know, the wave analogy really just doesn't. Yeah, absolutely. It really, um, it can give you a sense of the importance of, of spatial processes in, in disease transmission. So when we think of, um, of a population, we can also think of a larger or meta population, right? And that's where you have all these subgroupings. So populations structured in space um, and dynamics can be different um, between these populations. And fire really gets at this. If you, if you think about patches of, of forest, um, and you think about a fire moving through different patches of forests and um, you're going to get spread that's kind of not not um, the same through different areas you're going to see that fire moving differently throughout the landscape and um, but there are ways that you can tackle the spread of fire um, in a forest so there you can make fire breakers so where you actually remove um, vegetation between different patches of, of forest so you, you remove that connectivity that allows spread and um, through the landscape and that's that can you can think about and um, the spread of 
disease in a similar way where if you if you want to limit disease spread between different populations or between different areas of space or different cities and countries or between different countries you can start to think about how you limit spread um, geographically through um through for example interventions like testing or vaccinations and really think about suppressing on a on a wider geographical basis rather than kind of focusing only on the local, ignoring the wider dynamics, or not considering how different local dynamics are affected. So different cities, so we have movement between between um, areas of high in infections and areas of low infections, that then changes the dynamics in, in those areas. You can start to see the persistence of infection by these this movement between these different subpopulations. Um, and fire really does get at that by, by thinking about how uh, a wildfire or a forest fire might spread and how you actually tackle that spread as well. So it kind of gives you the language to talk about, you know, a lot more with to speak about the topic with a lot more nuance than you would have if you didn't have, you know, a strong analogy there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it works at multiple levels as well. So if you're thinking of the, the larger spatial dynamics in terms of like, for example, global um COVID-19 dynamics and you're thinking about different countries, that could be useful language for, for policymakers um, and public health officials. So thinking about how countries and cities are connected um, and how you manage spread between those kind of um, geographic units um, and right down to, to local levels as well. So you have people within communities thinking about space within community and how you actually limit spread between um, hot spots within communities as well by limiting movement and and limiting the likelihood of of um, uh, contact that transmits infection between those those different units. And um, so thinking about how you actually just stop the spread of fire in space. And there's there's lots of different ways you can you can think about this from fire blankets to dousing. Um, dousing vegetation, for example, in water is almost akin to vaccination, right? So you're trying to prevent that fire ever taking off, just as you're trying to prevent those infections ever taking off in people who are vaccinated. So it gives you a new language to kind of think about these intervention measures and what they're actually achieving. Okay, so I think that makes a very strong case for the fire analogy um, and its use in describing this sort of public health situation. Uh, but I wanted to chat about some of the others just to kind of broaden the perspective out a little bit and also because, you know, I found them interesting. Um, you know, one of the models that the article discusses is the whack-a-mole or, you know, kind of gaming analogy model. How does that one work and kind of, you know, what sort of messages is it good at conveying and where does it fall short? You know, how do those other ones sort of kind of play into all of this yeah for sure so whack-a-mole was one that was um was used a little bit and as well as some of some other game analogies such as playing tennis or playing ping pong or playing chess with the virus things like this which um which they they target different components of um of the of disease spread and of pandemic dynamics um and they've Kind of been used to to greater or lesser success. So if we talk about whack moles, you have this game where you have these these moles popping up out of out of their burrows, and the aim of the game is to whack the moles and limit them popping up. But the the game is premised on the idea that the mole can pop up anywhere because these burrows are connected, and that is similar to how populations are connected in space. You have cities, for example, that are connected through movement of people. 
Um, and while you still have um, virus being transmitted, you can get outbreaks starting to pop up in these um, different cities through movement um, or through um, disease transmitting contacts. So understanding how these, these populations are connected and what that means in terms of disease spread um, can be helpful to think about this in terms of whack-a-mole, that the, the mole can always pop up whenever these these burrows are connected. And if you really only focus on hitting the, the mole or whacking the mole when it pops up without considering all these different connections and the possibility of where it might pop up in the future, you're kind of missing out on the, the idea of, um, of connected populations in space, right? So that the, the virus could continue to spread or the mole could continue to pop up unless you really try and take control of the broader geographic area. Um, and the kind of same idea can be can be seen in things like a ping pong analogy, so that we don't want to be playing ping pong with with the virus, for example. So you you really don't want to kind of suppress the virus for a short space of time and then to have it reappear again, right? So when the ball's in play, that basically means that there's still um, disease being transmitted, there's still spread, um, even at low levels. So it's really kind of makes the case for taking the ball out of place, so really suppressing the, the virus and suppressing transmiss transmission um, sufficiently that you're essentially removing the ball from, from play. You're limiting the likelihood of any reappearance of, um, of disease and of the virus. Um, so that's kind of where, where some of these game-based analogies can be useful. Um, but again, it's important to kind of remember that the spatial element of, of this is important. So if, if the game is at play in other areas, then there's always this possibility for re-emergence of the virus. And this could potentially happen in, in the case of um, novel variants. So if there's if um, the virus is allowed to persist in other geographic areas, you can start to see variants of, of concern emerging. So that's um, another reason to kind of think about um, geographic distribution in terms of vaccine coverage, um, so equitable vaccine coverage across the world as well. So these are kind of the things you can start to get at when you start to think of these other game-based analogies. Um, so yeah, there's kind of, I guess what you, to really take from those is that there are different analogies that are suitable for different messages and at different points in the pandemic for different things that you're trying to communicate. Um, and that's really kind of what we tried to highlight um, in this study is that at different points and for different different messages, you might want to start thinking about using different analogies. That makes sense. And I'm wondering now about, you know, what analogies we can or should be using um, in the era that we're in now, which is, you know, we have endemic disease. Um, we're not going to eradicate COVID um, by any stretch. Uh, does the fire analogy still serve us well in this phase of the pandemic? Um, do we need, you know, other models? Kind of what's the right way for us to think in terms of analogies for this moment that we're in now? Yeah, so my focus is, is definitely on thinking of how we can communicate things effectively, right? So not necessarily thinking of what the best policy is right now, but how we can how we can communicate these things effectively so that people then have the knowledge that they, they need to make their own informed choices. And I think that actually is something that is still really important. I mean, the importance of people being informed and understanding the risks hasn't lessened right now. If anything, as we've started to, to see um, kind of 
restrictions eased in many areas, I think it's important that people themselves can still understand um, how how disease spreads and what they can do um, in their own daily lives if they want to make these choices to 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 limit risk or to to kind of yet yeah, I guess to just be informed on what they can do. Um, and it's still important, I think, even in a broader scale beyond the COVID nineteen pandemic, to have a language that we can we can draw on to to communicate with the public, particularly um, with with uh, public health officials and with policymakers, so you can really get get some complex information across in a simple way. Um, and I don't think the the importance of that lessens. Um, at all, even as the pandemic has progressed, it's still important to be able to communicate these things. Um, and yeah, in terms of in terms of management right now, I mean, I think there's there's still spread of virus happening. So while that's the case, it's important to be able to to talk about how that spread's occurring, um, and what people can do to limit that spread. And 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 so it, it kind of comes back to that fire model being the one that's um, best serves those types of, of needs of communicating to the general public, you know, kind of about the situation broadly speaking. Yeah. So in terms of the the fire analogy and and how it still remains useful is that the risk of fire is is there, right? So people are, are familiar with the idea of a forest fire, and particularly in in areas that where forest fire is, or wildfire is a particular risk, people have this this knowledge that a fire can take off so they're aware they're vigilant and um, i think there are lessons that are, are pretty important or their kind of concepts that are important to kind of hold on to um throughout throughout the pandemic as, as things continue that this this understanding of vigilance and and how how spread occurs and what we can do to mitigate that is is important just to keep in mind and yeah the the fire analogy definitely captures that i think it really creates that that sense of yeah vigilance and and that the reemergence of fire is is always a possibility right and I think that's a great note to leave it on with the uh, hope that our listeners are able to not get burned um, and I would also just like to recommend to our listeners to uh, become readers as well if you check out this article there are a lot of interesting analogies discussed and I, I think you'll have a fun time with it but uh, in the meantime dr. Archer thank you very much for joining me today yeah thanks very much it was a pleasure I really enjoyed getting to discuss this a little bit more And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you, and talk to you next time.